Please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 11. I will be reading Luke 11 verses 24 through 36. When the unclean spirit had gone out of... Excuse me. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things... A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Father, Your truth has been once and for all delivered through the prophets and the apostles. May we see and receive and welcome the light. Jesus, may the intended purpose and meaning of what you spoke that day and had your servant, Dr. Luke, record. May I represent that which is clearly here. And may we thus be moved and changed and helped to adore you more to the glory of your name. Amen. As we continue with Jesus' message to the crowd that we started last week, this morning, 
His central point is that neutrality with Jesus. To be neutral with the Holy Scripture is peril to our souls. Jesus' plea is do not be satisfied with mere moral improvements in your life, getting free from your demons, or without replacing that vacuum with the Word of God is your joy and your treasure. He's saying this morning, don't be hearers of the Word without being moved, affected. Thus, doers of the Word. Don't be a person who gets a little bit of religion. Yeah, I go to church, you know. Once in a while, I feel pretty good about that, but I'm not a fanatic about it. God doesn't have like my, my, my heart, you know. Uh, yeah, religious. I don't know what you're talking about. about it says deep affection towards Christ and the truth of the Gospel. No, I, I, I don't commit to the body of Christ. He doesn't have me that way. He certainly doesn't, doesn't have my money, my morality. Jesus' message is right there in verse 28 of our text. Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. And so, as we pick up where we left off, This morning in verse 24, remember the context from last week. Jesus had just performed an exorcism and it elicited two responses from the crowds. One, you can see it in verse 15, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. (laughs) He's not from God. While others, in order to test him, kept seeking from him a sign of from heaven. And last week we saw that he responded to the first one with wrong. Logic doesn't work. The point is the kingdom of God that had been promised to the prophets has come upon you. And this is the evidence. And we concluded with verse 23, Jesus' statement. Whoever is not with me is against me. No. What are you talking about, Jesus? I'm not against you. I'm neutral. I'm okay with the prophet Jesus. And so, Jesus goes on to illustrate His point in verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last 
state of that person is worse than the first. See, this, what he says, is more about the man than it is about the unclean spirit. It is a warning about the danger of experiencing a freedom, a deliverance. Even from Jesus Himself, this man had a demon cast out of Him. And say, look at that, I'm free from what bound me. But then to go on and to not fill yourself, your house, with the Gospel with the Word of God, with affection for the Savior. People experience, in the name of religion, all kinds of changes in their lives at times, moral reformations, even exorcisms. They got off their drug addiction. They got cleaned up from their alcoholism or wild, promiscuous sexual lifestyle. Or fill in the blank. I feel good. I'm clean. My life is changed. As this text says, the house is cleaned, swept, in peace, in order. Oh, but it's waiting. It's waiting for a resident. And as he says, the unclean spirits, they get restless in waterless places. That's just a metaphor for, see, he's been cast out of the man. Demon spirits do not like to not be indwelling humans. That's what I think he means by the waterless places. But all the while, while that's going on in Jesus' story, this man in his story did not furnish the house with a new resident. It's clean. It's swept. It's empty. Didn't fill himself with the Word of God. The negative went out. You're going to see for a while. But Jesus, as this man's affection did not, Enter. And so the Spirit checks back in and look! The Holy Spirit isn't there. New life isn't there. And he gets seven other buddies and come live together in this man. And now his life is in a much worse state than before. There are lots of of things in life besides Jesus Christ that can bring results, that can bring relief, that can bring improvement. Understanding that is really crucial in our day, in our age, when in so much of our evangelicalism that we're, we're part of, so much of it, there's this in the air, truth, Doctrine, not really all that important. I mean, come on. I mean, who cares about doctrine? Just give me three points on how to better my marriage. Three steps to get delivered from my addictions. Teach me how to live a successful life. 
How many people in the name of the seeker-sensitive movement have experienced through church changes in their lives for a while? And all that time have never filled their heart and soul with the truth of God's holy gospel as their treasure, not just a duty. They haven't marveled over the atonement of Christ, the incarnation that the Bible lays out that God in Christ became a human being and the ramifications of that and His glorious resurrection. In Romans, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and on all of those things just fill in the heart with this intimate, prayerful life and connection with God. Only down the road because they're swept, they're clean, and didn't fill it. With that, they end up in a much worse state than before. I've tried Christianity in that road. Consider the danger even. I'm going to be careful here. And see, I know churches differ and they struggle with, should we allow a 12-step program to be part of the church and Christianize it? And I'm not going to make a statement, but do you, do you not? But from our text, I will make the statement of the danger of that. Because one thing is for sure. The 12 steps work if you work them. They work no matter what you choose. It's your higher power. And logic, therefore, says... Ah, those 12 steps working, no matter what you choose, Jesus, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, New Age movement, yourself is your own higher power, whatever it is, if they work, no matter what you choose, that shows that it's not the higher power that's producing the change. There are people who get much help, get cleaned up, their marriages work better because of it, because they're not destroying their lives anymore. And it happens even if they choose as their higher power the quote-unquote Christian God. Jesus' stunning point is that exorcism of, a, of an, an evil spirit, a real entity that He cast out, and Jesus Himself says, come out, and it does, and this man speaks that exorcism of demonic influence in itself is not sufficient. But it only benefits that now that He is gone, you respond to the Gospel. Not merely intellect, you respond. I see, we're going to see this, I see. The lights where Jesus is going. And that's his next point about this response in verses 27 and 28. As Jesus said these things, Luke structures it on purpose this way. There's a flow. As Jesus is speaking, he's said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you. 
And the breast at which you nursed. Boy, your mama must be something. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. That's how you fill your empty house. Now see, Jesus' response, He's not denying how blessed Mary, His mother, is. Luke has already made that clear that she's blessed. That's not His point. His point is, this woman, the sentiment that's going on publicly here is a little off kilter. He's saying, your blood relations to Me, the Savior, is not the point. Hearing the Word of God and doing it is the point. The person who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit through new birth doesn't say, I'm free. Thank you, Jesus, for casting out the demon. I'm free. Look at my life. And that's it. But the person goes on and clings to the Savior. Clings to the Word of God as its life and its direction and its treasure. Now, feel that? In this text now, Jesus has set up now where He's going. He has set up His answer to those in the text we have seen who have demanded, show us a sign from heaven. And His answer, in a nutshell, is evidence is not your problem. An unrepentant heart and a refusal to see is your problem. And so Luke, in verse 29, makes this transition. When the crowds were increasing, here we go, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Obviously, Jesus did not have some of the church growth classes I had to have in Bible college and seminary. You don't say that. You don't say that to seekers. He missed out on the seminars on how to... Reach the unreached by making your message user-friendly. Read it again. As the crowds increased, Jesus began to change His tune and tell them how wonderful they were and that God has a wonderful plan for their life. No. 
as the crowds increased, Jesus began saying, This generation is an evil generation. And then He goes on to warn them about the judgment to come. Centuries earlier, 600 years earlier, during Jeremiah's day, there were many prophets getting large crowds by saying, Peace! Peace! When there was no peace. Any preaching that does not confront sin is false preaching. Any preaching that does not point to the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ where God punished sin, poured out His wrath on sinners, and that that is the only only means to eternal healing of the soul is false preaching. So, in the context, here's Jesus after much itinerant public preaching and He's done miracle after miracle and healing after healing. And now we just come to another one in this context, right? And here He is. He's been around for almost three years by this point and demon just went out. Okay, we're not as harsh as those, but Give us a sign from heaven. And so Jesus says to them, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man, that's himself, be to this generation. Why did he respond this way? Is it because he's mean? No. It's because Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows that if he did a hundred more miraculous signs that day in public, it wouldn't change a thing about their hearts. He knows that their problem, and give us a sign, give us a sign, is not evidence and signs. He knows it's the rebelliousness and the unwillingness to repent of their hearts. They wanted to see a good show, and they, you know, what you say, this Jesus knew that they will figure out ways as they've already done. Some of them already had it down. Oh, got it. (laughs) Satan, prince of demons, that's why he does this. They will have a way in the long run to deny the evidence of his miraculous signs because they do not want to repent and follow him as their Lord. And so Jesus tells them, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. What is that? There are two main 
interpretations of how do we understand this. And the reason I'm going to give two because, you know, one of my main commentators, Daryl Bach, he's really good. He writes well and he's a top-notch scholar. But I'm going to come out disagreeing with him on this. But there are two main ones, and he holds to the, the first, that the sign of Jonah refers to Jonah's preaching of repentance. Remember, Jonah, finally, he ends up in the Gentile city of Nineveh where God wanted him to go. He preached about the impending judgment that's coming, and the whole city repented. And so the, the analogy, therefore, would be Jesus is saying, you don't get any sign but the sign I've been giving, which is my constant preaching of repentance. Okay, you follow me there? Okay. It's possible in Luke. But I lean towards a second view. That when Jesus says, I'm giving you no sign but the sign of Jonah, he means his own resurrection. Which parallels... Jonah. Now, from the text, let me tell you why I think so. Three reasons you put them together, I think they're pretty strong. One, no sign are you going to get. Now, that word sign, Simeon, it almost always refers to some type of miraculous event. It's just, okay, so for, it's a little hard to understand that the, the ongoing preaching ministry of repentance, that that's what he means by sign. Secondly, notice the wording of verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign. He says Jonah, the person, is a sign. As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man, what? Become a sign to this generation. He doesn't speak of the words particularly that he's preaching as the sign. He points to the persons, Jonah and himself. Jesus as a sign. Now, the third reason is that the future tense. It's in the future. The verb, when he says, he, himself, Jesus, future, not today. Maybe at this point, within a couple months, will be a sign in the future. So the parallel is whereas Jonah the prophet, in a way, perished, died, was judged. He sinned, he ran away from God. God's punishment, his judgment against Jonah, got him thrown over the boat swallowed by a big fish, three days and three nights, as good as dead. He repents, that great prayerful poem in Jonah, and thus, as an analogy, is raised from the dead. He survived it, spit out on the land, and he goes and he preached to Nineveh. Jonah shows up in Nineveh. I just have to assume that maybe Jonah told him, this is how I got here. And you might have, I still don't want to preach to you. But, and so, I, Jonah, I survived three days and three nights in a fish somehow. He's a sign. He's a sign of God's judgment and of God's mercy. 
And in the same way, just as Jonah was a sign, Jesus says, I'm a sign. Oh, is He the reality of the sign. He will perish. He will go to the cross and He will receive God's judgment against sinners. And He will be slaughtered. And He will be raised triumphant over death. He will conquer sin and judgment on behalf of many. He will destroy death forever. He's the sign. That's the sign. He says to his generation, that's what you will get. Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate sign for everybody. Just for a moment, if you either listen or flip, Matthew, in, in the parallel passage, Jesus says this, Matthew 12, 39-40, An evil generation, an adulterous and evil generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, now, no wonder Jesus didn't seek to tickle the ears of these people. Why? Because he knew the issue wasn't with his message. He knew the issue was their unrepentant hearts. And Jesus knows better than us that the means to soften them and save rebellious sinners like me is the preaching of that truth. Over the last number of decades now. We, we have seminars that specifically and directly teach pastors to not be straightforward in your churches about sin and God's wrath. But instead, preach... Actually, some of them would say, don't even do that. Give talks... Goodness gracious, do not go 45 minutes or an hour. 20, 30 at max, and fill it with stories. Tell lots of stories. People like that. They don't want to hear arguments. It's too linear. Makes them think too much. You'll lose their attention and you won't grow a church. They don't want to hear doctrine. And as a result, there are so many evangelical people that are just starving for the Word of God. Paul, in his old age, knew that these kinds of times would come. 
And so he writes to young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 5. Hear the heart of the apostle to a pastor. Timothy, I charge you. Now, okay, how serious are you, Paul? Listen to him. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Okay, he had not even got to the charge yet. He wants us to feel it. He wants Timothy to feel it. I charge you by all of this seriousness, Timothy. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why does Paul feel it so much? See the next word? For. Meaning, this is why. Because the time is coming when people will not endure. It means they don't want sound teaching. But instead, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know what God often does to our sinful, rebellious hearts that do not want to hear the truth of His Word? He doesn't shut down the churches. He brings judgment and He lets you have the teachers you want. Turn on the TV. Paul concludes, but it's for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Biblical preaching always reproves and rebukes and it encourages or exhorts. It does not tickle ears and go along with the felt desires of us sinful people. The truth comes and it cuts and it wounds, and it heals, and it saves, and it sanctifies, and works on us. And that's what we are to learn from the Queen of Sheba. Continue on, verse 31. Jesus says, The Queen of the South, 
She will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Why? Answer, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She got it! And behold, you didn't have to travel anywhere. I'm right in front of you, he says. Something greater than Solomon is right here in your midst. Jesus says, the Queen of the South, you can read it in Kings and Chronicles. She heard of Solomon. You know how much money, the entourage, how much time and trouble it took for her from southern Arabia to show up at Jerusalem to see if this is true? And Jesus says, that's God's wisdom. She got it. And you have Him personified in front of you. He's been preaching to you for years and showing miracles. And you say, give me a sign! And so Jesus says, this Gentile, pagan woman, at least before she got to Jerusalem, she will stand in judgment of you, my fellow Jews. She will say, what was your problem? Who cared how far church was? (laughs) The Word of God was there. And I stood right in front of you. She'll point it out on the day of judgment. And Jesus goes on in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah preached to the Ninevites, even though he didn't want to. He kind of knew God was merciful, and it bugged him. Gentiles, he didn't want to do it. And he fled. And we know the story. He ends up in Nineveh, and his worst fears were realized. The people heard what he preached, and they responded. The whole city repented. They listened to the preached word and repented. That's what Jesus says to them. And he says, the one much greater than Jonah is right in front of you. Good sermon, Jesus. Yeah, I know, Jonah. Okay, great. Oh, give us a sign. That's what he's dealing with. Gentile Ninevites will be at the judgment day and they will be exhibit A, Jesus says to his fellow Jews who are responding this way. They will be exhibit A. You had no excuse. The implication is clear. Respond to the word. 
Respond to the light that you have been given. And that's the point Jesus goes on to illustrate in verses 33 to 36. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket. But they put it on a stand. So that those who enter may see the light. Okay, duh. It's very simple. Oil, lamp, light it. You put it on a table. Lights the room. That's what it's for. People could see. What, what's okay? Get the context. He's clearly saying, I'm standing right here. Someone greater than Jonah is right here. The light is on the stand. Clarity is here. Clearly by the... That clarity. Gotta, well, I think we gotta, just got to get this. Clarity of the truth is one thing. The response of people's hearts to it is another. Verse 34. Got the, got the light now. Light now. He's going to go and extend this. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, you're blind. It's unhealthy. doesn't work. Got the analogy? And your whole body is full of darkness. So, Clearly by eye, metaphorically, he means the eye of your heart, of your soul. He means the, the, the eyes of your heart that would see and believe, or as he spoke at other times, you know, you, he who has ears to hear. He didn't mean the one on your head, because they're hearing him say that. He means ears of your heart. I see, I hear it, I see it. He says, when your eye's healthy, do you, do you hear the gospel? Do you hear His word? Is the light penetrating through your eye gate into your soul? He says, your whole body's full of light. It means your whole life. It's changed. Full light. Because of the clarity of the word. With the same clarity of the word, He's saying, when your heart is dark, when it's unaffected, by the softening work of the Holy Spirit, when the clarity of the Word is coming forth, that darkness shows itself by your blindness to the preached Word. His point is, no amount of light is going to help a blind person. So, this is why Jesus, standing there, doesn't wring his hands. Oh, shoot. Why aren't they getting it? I know. Maybe I need to construct my sermons differently. Then they'll hear. Maybe I need to turn the light up more. Then the blind person will see and believe. It's not what he does. Because... He knows blind people won't see. He knows the problem isn't 
with His preaching. Turn them off, Jesus, by talking about judgment. Tell them good things. God's got a plan for your life and it's really good. So Jesus wants them and He wants every one of us in here to respond to verses 35 and 36. Therefore, be careful. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you is darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. That be careful lest... It it means see to it. That's something. It, it, It means make sure you let the light... In. That's what it means, isn't it? My exegesis is bad. It means absorb, hear, receive the word, the, the, the light, the truth. So, what Jesus is saying is the light has come into the world. There's one cohesive message. We we call it the gospel. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and then all the implications in the Word. It's a glorious book. It's come into the world. And yes, there are persons who hear it. Even churched persons. And they are not changed by it. But they remain in darkness. What do you do about it? What we learn is that the answer is not, okay, let's jazz up the word a little bit. Jazz up the music. Be a little bit more user-friendly in the delivery. Don't go over 20 minutes you lose their attention. Tell more stories about your life, Pastor Joe. You got six kids, you can tell a lot. I know, but then you wouldn't like me because my story's messy. I don't have all those good ones. I got a little bit, right? A little bit? No. No, I meant about my parenting. My children are wonderful. Sinners. All right. (laughs) A preacher shouldn't look at his wife while he's preaching. Jesus is saying the answer isn't let's hide the light in the cellar. There's only one hope of true and everlasting salvation from God's judgment. And just know, Jesus knew it and He taught us over and over again. Be clear and trust the Word. Let the light shine. This is true in evangelism. It's true out in the open air. It's true in local churches. Preach 
the Word, and yes, there will always be those amongst you who are full of darkness, and they will be bored by the message. They will be bored by doctrine. They'll be bored by the Bible. No wonder the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, the following. And he means himself as a preacher in all kinds of different roles, as an apostle, as a missionary, as a pastor at times. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but, listen to him, but we have renounced. What did you renounce, Paul, as a preacher? What have you renounced? We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning cleverness or to tamper with God's Word. But instead, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul, like Jesus, his great master, knew something. He goes on. And, in so doing, if our gospel is veiled, nothing is happening to people, It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, get the end. For or because God, the, the one who said, let light shine out of the darkness when he created the world, that God, that very same God, let light shine, and he created the universe. He says, that same God who did that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, does not need the help of peons like me. He needs vessels, as Paul said, as an open statement of the truth. God knows what He's doing. He knew what He did from the foundation of the world by sending His Son and accomplishing salvation and saying, now go preach it. It is clear in our text that Jesus believed in the coming 
judgment where every person living or dead will appear. The Queen of Sheba will be there. The people of the city of Nineveh will be there. The Jews of Jesus' day will be there. Persons from every tribe and every time period will be there. And God, the Creator, the perfectly righteous One, He will be there. And He will do absolutely no wrong. And therefore... He will judge every person based on the light they received and their response to it. According to Romans 1 and 2, whether by the Word of God, the revelation of God, through the Word, or by conscience, which He has put in every human being, we have all justly been Condemned for our sin. Thank God He sent the Savior. And that's the core of what Jesus says throughout this text. He's on His way to Jerusalem. And we look on this side now. And there, Jesus, in the place of many, suffered the wrath of God against their sin. Not his own. He had none. And then he was raised on the third day. Jesus is the sign of Jonah. In our text, he is, and his message is, the lamp on the table in the world. His teaching is something greater than Solomon and something greater than Jonah in the world. If we do not see Him and flee to Him for refuge from the just wrath that we deserve, it's because of our own darkened eyes. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is not with the Gospel. It's with our hearts. And so, if the light of the Gospel has not shined upon your heart as we just read, then what? Oh, then I plead with you. Cry out to the One who made you. Cry. Shine your light. Let me see as they say. Teenagers, raised in Christian families like mine. If you don't know, cry out, God, let me taste it is good and not just merely my parents' religion. Because without His shining the light, you won't see. And those of us who are in Christ, let us according to this text, continue to expose our lives, our hearts, our sins, our brokenness to the Word of God. 
to the preaching of the Word, to the reading of the Word, to the exhorting and encouraging, improving one another, reproving one another with the Word. Because Jesus said in our text, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. I know He's working right now. So as we sing, let Him continue to work in you, on you. He knows what He's doing, dear believer. We're desperate every day to wake up and say, God, make my heart receptive to Your work in Your Word and by Your Spirit. See.